Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Piron. Well, I just finished a recorded conversation with Matthew Dix, Matt Dix, who is a fifth grade teacher and on and beyond and on and beyond and on and beyond. He has a number of practices in a constellation of practices, all believe, I believe uh, revolving around the orbit of his love for teaching fifth graders how to learn mightily and hopefully for the rest of their lives and other subjects. (laughs) But it was so much fun to meet him. I found him on Facebook and I was intrigued that there's someone just down the road from where I worked for 30 years at Central Connecticut State who's doing that wonderful work and uh, making uh, making himself known all, basically all over the world, but still going to work at 7.30 in the morning on a Tuesday, full of ideas on how to make the day fun and learningful and meaningful. With these uh, very fortunate to have him students. So take a listen. Uh, I am so worked up from the conversation (laughs) that uh, while I'm editing, I'll I'll probably critique myself and say, Dave, you should have let Matt talk even more because everything he said was so on target for what I believe is effective, robust, memorable practice. Matt Dix. Take care of life and uh, there would be, you know, th- th- that would be perfectly fine. So I'm teaching really, I'm happy to get a paycheck to teach, but I'm doing it because it's what I want to do right now. And um, I certainly can be doing other things, but yeah, it's a thing I like to do. So that's why I go to school every day. I just asked uh, Matt if he thought teaching was his calling and, and he spoke very well of it. And then I looked up and I thought, can I say this on the Fear on podcast? Oh shit, I forgot to turn on the recording. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can say that. But I, I I'm I'm gonna build it from here. So sure. uh, we only lost a minute or two. <laughs> and I was rambling a bit before we started, as I do. Uh the, the that is a, a classic dichotomy between those of us who work in the public service, particularly in teaching. Because it does actually feel totally like a calling, as rough as it can be. At the same time, the business mind that's present around us and sometimes within us is saying, money on the table, man, money on the table. Yeah. But I told you before I turned on a recording that I would be receiving the the benefits of your labor as a teacher in the uh, K-12 system here in Connecticut uh, would come to me because our school was a public university, rather affordable, central Connecticut. And I could almost tell in that 
early class that I would teach the uh, entry level to the understanding of management and leadership who had had their pilot light turned on and turned up before they reached college. Yeah. Because my course would say, all right, from this moment on, you can take notes, but don't don't write down what I say. <laughs> write down what you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like, some of them would go into shock. What are we, how am I going to get a grade in this course? And now I've been following your uh, your work to the extent that I think you probably say the same thing to your students. You know, don't don't pretend, don't sit on a, like a bump on a log and watch the clock, right? Yeah, I have moments. Um, I have moments where I stand on a chair and I say, "All right, it happened today." You know, we were talking about the Constitution because it is the uh, Constitution Day. Yeah, and we were looking at the preamble. And, you know, I had only been talking for like three minutes and I sort of like lost a couple of kids. I could tell they were already gone. And so whatever that happens, yeah, I stand up on a chair and I say, all right, listen, I've been speaking for three minutes about something that's important and you're all going to pull it together. You know, I put the number 52 on the board every day. It's my age. And I Ah. say, all right, I'm 52 and you're 10. So if I have more energy than you, you failed miserably today. So pull it together and keep up with the old man, you know? So, um, yeah, no, I expect a level of engagement at all times. And I get it most of the time, you know, but uh, today they were, um, they read the preamble and thought, this is not for me, but I made it for them. Eventually we brought it to to real life for them. How did you get a hook into that for this 10 year old uh, mind? Uh, what, uh, what in the preamble do you think that you helped them? Um, and I say, oh, okay. I, I, well, I, yeah. I think I get that. Well, the first thing I did is I mem- I have the preamble memorized. So I recited it to them. And then I told them they could never do what I just did. So ah, telling kids that they can't do something right. So the art they were in on the, what do we get if we memorize it? And I said, well, there's definitely going to be a prize, but I'll never tell you what the prize is. So, uh, so they were in on that. And, you know, things like, um, provide for common welfare. That was an interesting part. You know, we went right to that and we talked about what common welfare was and domestic tranquility actually really appealed to them because we talked about things as simple as speeding and, you know, making sure that there are systems in place to prevent people from driving unsafely all the way to, you know, crime. And, you know, one of my students said, we I saw Walgreens robbed once of toilet paper and it didn't make any sense to me and my mom that someone would run out of Walgreens with four bags of toilet paper, but that's what he stole. And she said, I felt like my domestic tranquility was ruined that day. So, you know, bringing it it to their real life makes a big difference to kids. Yeah. How do they bring their life to you? Well, you know, the thing that I do is I tell stories about my life all the time. Mm -hmm. And what I've discovered is as soon as I share something embarrassing, shameful, ridiculous, foolish from my life, they are more than willing to sort of reveal things about themselves that are important. So, you know, it's not uncommon for me to have, you know, three or four girls over the course of the school year come to me and say, Mr. Dix, I just had my first period. Mm-hmm. And my first thought is there's lady teachers everywhere. Like there's one right there and there's one right there. Like, and they came to me and I know they come to me because they're my students and I've shared enough embarrassment and foolishness and awkwardness with them that when they're feeling it, that those feelings in that moment, 
they recognize that I'm the person to come to. So I always, you know, I, I'm happy they came to me. And then I tell them, I don't use any of the products that you require right now. So you're going to have to go to speak to Mrs. So-and-so, and she's going to help you more than I can. Go see the nurse. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, ultimately, ultimately, I choose not to be a black box. I grew up with teachers who, for the most part, I couldn't tell you if they were parents. I couldn't tell you if they were married. I couldn't tell you what their hobbies were. They really were sort of like just black boxes to me. And the ones that stood out and meant something to me were the ones that actually brought humanity to the work. And so for me, I'm constantly bringing myself to the job and sharing of myself at all times. Bringing humanity to the work, that, that is, uh, you know, that's, that's a quote of the day for me. I, I do pull a few quotes out when I feature this episode in a few weeks. In a way, what Peter Vale and I say about practice is that it is something that we choose to do in order to achieve results indefinitely and challenging and no matter what the circumstances and uh the reward for that is growth and learning yeah and uh so that enhances our humanity it's a it's a wonderful uh, positive cycle i i put myself out there i i I do things uh, that I didn't even believe I could do a year ago or even five minutes ago. And voila, I feel more fulsome as a human being. Now that is the example, personal example that you present in that classroom to your students. Watch me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to grow too. In fact, Peter and I call that co-learning and, uh, and co-inquiry. And we believed, uh, you got to have as much growth and learning out of being a teacher as your students are. Otherwise, it's just a paycheck. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's why I often don't do the same thing twice. You yeah. know, so if I'm, you know, right now we're reading Macbeth. And um, it's a story I read every year. It's a good opening story that we read. I do Shakespeare a lot with the students. But eventually it comes time to do a play. And every year I do a different play and I cycle through a whole bunch. And, you know, and sometimes my colleagues will say, why don't you just do the same one you had last year? You had the props, you had the sets. Yeah. And I said, well, that's really going to bore me, you know, to do the same thing. I don't like to read the same book. I want to read a new book. And my favorite thing to do is to read a book to my students or with my students that I've never read as well. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, I'm not sort of going through it for a second time. I'd rather be, you know, discovering it for the first time with my students, you know, in that process. And it's a little more work, but it's a lot more fun. And why, why would uh, we do it otherwise? I mean, it, fun is underrated, I think. And I don't mean funny and humor and all, there's plenty of that around and in, in cans and online and everywhere else. But fun is that bringing the humanity out. I think fun is, uh, uh, to me, fun is the sort of the sizzle, you know, it, 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 in the classroom. And, and our, when I started at Central in 85, the classrooms in these very old buildings literally had the a blackout curtain still on from World War II. You know, yeah. keeping uh, keeping the light uh, inside in case the planes fly over. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Because I yeah. came from a fairly posh school teaching at Colby College. And, and I thought, oh, boy. But I knew I wanted to be with working people, uh, students who work and whose parents work. And, and uh, 
the ones you know the ha- more heavy heavy lifting to get to get their spirits up anyway yeah. long long story short i think that um the way i lit that room until i they finally renovated renovated them into some very beautiful classrooms now is uh we had some fun yeah so we and, and 10 year olds or 20 year olds it, it brings out the spirit don't you agree well you know i actually you know i think fun is almost critical and missed all the time years and years ago we were writing the mission statement for our school and i was on that committee and because i'm a writer I was sort of sent into the room to draft the first draft of what that would be. And I had the word fun in it. It was a guarantee that kids would come and have fun every day. And everyone thought I was sort of joking by putting the word fun in and they took it out and then I put it back in and then they took it out and then I put it back in and eventually it's not in our mission statement. But I, I think the most important thing a teacher does beyond anything else is to get kids to want to come to school and have an enjoyable experience. Yes. And if, if that means nothing is learned, but a kid sees that building as a place they want to be at tomorrow, I think that is a successful day. Now, ideally, all of those other things will flow from it. But, you know, I am a teacher who over 25 years has tended not to have very many disciplinary problems with my students and parents tend to be pretty happy with me. And I tend not to have any sort of rough edges in my in my educational career. You know, people tend to be happy with the work I do. And I'm, I really believe it's mostly because kids want to come to school. When your kid goes home and says, I love school and I can't wait to go back tomorrow. That's all you need. That is Absolutely. all a parent wants to hear. You know, they don't even care what the content is and what the curriculum is at that point. Cause the kid is happy to be at school. And so fun Absolutely. for me is essential and fun. Like you said, sometimes it's being funny. Sometimes fun is just like choice. It, fun can be I have 10 math problems on a page and you can do four and you can pick which four to do. My intent was for you to do four anyway. But when I crowd a 10 page assignment and I put it in front of you and say, you know what? You only have to do four and you get to pick the four for kids. That is fun. So sometimes Mm -hmm. it's something as simple as choice, you know, or it's simple as like I showed up three minutes early to my art class today. So we played Simon says in the hallway instead of standing and waiting. Yeah. And that was fun. So interjecting fun into a school day is simple and forgotten all the time or ignored just it's perceived as not as important or it's perceived as something negative when i think it's the most important thing a teacher does every day is make kids want to come back the next day i uh, i get it 100% and i would say that my uh, the, the realm that i left after 50 years in higher education is struggling right now with uh declining enrollments and lots of this tremendous upheaval upheaval largely uh we can blame the pandemic and the shutdown but more moreover uh by and large colleges wanted to do it the same way they've always done it and uh marching students through the prerequisite courses you know and pushing them into in my business school making them take uh calculus mm-hmm. you know drove, drove some of them right over to the arts and science school which i said a blessing on you i think you're gonna end up with one more expansive way to think uh it was a little hard on my business school but um my point <laughs> is that we literally did not allow them to get into the excitement of business because it can be very exciting yeah, very much involved in the game and and uh, and 
coming up with something no one else has, all of that. But until they got there, uh, there was a few others who taught like I, but most of them, they'd get to my classes. And uh, I would pronounce that from now forward, you can begin to think of yourself as a business person. If you start putting a label on like marketer or accountant or whatever, then you're only adding, it's like a sticker. In fact, I had stickers for that lesson. And it's like, it's a stick it on. Now take those all off. Are you a business person? Uh, it's the same. Uh, some of them said, well, you've been retired for seven years. You're no longer a teacher. I said, no, of course I am. Mm. I find new ways to teach. So I take one sticker off, but I'm still fundamentally built to teach as I believe you are. Now, I want to come over to about a dozen of your other practices because you are as a very versatile person, but I think it's all tied in to you and what brings things creatively to mind. But let's talk about your writing. Have you always liked, loved writing? Yeah, I mean, for as long as I can kind of remember, it's been enjoyable to me. I, I started taking it very seriously in high school. And, you know, I was about 17 when I first told someone, my goal is to someday write for a living and teach for pleasure. You know, I kind of recognized right away that I wouldn't want to be a teacher that had to follow rules specifically. I wouldn't want to have sort of an overseer. So I thought if I can get in a position where teaching is sort of optional and I can not rely on it. You know, I don't need to climb some ladder in order to feel good about myself. And I can let my writing support that, that craft, that calling, that was the goal. I never thought it would actually happen. You know, that seemed like a fool's errand. I mean, I didn't, you know, I got kicked out of my house when I was 17 and I was homeless for a while. So I didn't even think I would ever become a teacher. Wow. So the fact today that now I can sort of do these other things and I choose to go teach, it didn't occur to me just until a couple of years ago, I realized, oh, I think I'm actually doing it. Because <laughs> that, I that don't idea really, you had in high school. Yeah, yeah I, and I really, it didn't occur to me. Like it had been something I said for a long time, but didn't think it would ever happen. But it sort of happened for me. So I'm very fortunate. Yeah, so I've written for all my life. What are some of your books? Uh, I published six novels and um, I have two books of nonfiction and a couple more on the way. So I have a book on storytelling and a book on creative productivity and then six adult novels, one that has crossed over into the YA market. It's actually in my children's curriculum, which is amazing to me that her school uses my book as part of their um, curriculum, and many schools do uh, around the country. So that's been a real blessing for me. What's, what's the name of that book for the uh, young adult market? Uh, Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend. Ah. Yeah. So uh, it was written for adults, and it still is an adult novel in my mind, but it's just managed to cross over and find an audience in, in teenagers as well. I'm writing the sequel to it right now. My children actually are old enough now. When I published it in 2012, they both existed, but they were zero and two years old. And now my children are 16 and 11, and they're actually beta readers for me. They're reading the early manuscripts and giving me feedback now on this new, on the second version of the story. So it's it's really an interesting process. So the imaginary friend is, is still around, or is that a different imaginary friend for the second book? It's a different imaginary friend who um, makes an appearance in the first book and has now taken the lead in the second book. Yeah, it was a book I wanted to write for a long time, but I, the one blessing I have as a writer is I have more ideas than I have time to write. So there's uh, never a problem with what's the next book going to be. The problem is which of these ideas will the next book be? Oh, I love it. I think that's, that's great. I, uh, 
two quick thoughts. First, uh, one of the ways that I always try to keep the uh, eyes on the off the cell phones in my classes with I would do film, film clips and so forth. So I wanted them to um, get the idea of uh, imagination. So I actually got clips of the movie Harvey. You remember that movie? I've never seen it, but since I've written the book, I've heard a lot about it. It's a rabbit, I think, right? Yes. Oh, very big, like <laughs> six feet tall. And, and James Stewart was brilliant as the, um, um, I can't think of the, the name that he, mm -hmm. of, of his character, but what we would analyze uh, in in the best sense of analysis, the whole notion of the imaginary rabbit, and uh, and these are like twenty one now uh, twenty two year old quotes kids, and why are we watching this black and white, gr somewhat grainy movie of this thing? But they got in, they got drawn into the story, yeah, and so now I want to segue to the storytelling the writing is certainly an aspect of that yes uh you do some of that publicly don't you yeah i'm a, i'm certainly a storyteller i perform you know on stages all over the world now i um i just did a solo show you know a, a three-night run at a local theater uh i did like an hour and a half on stage but i i travel to many many places and i do stories and now i'm doing inspirational addresses and i work with a lot of um I work with a lot of companies now. I, things I never expected would happen. You know, I I thought I was standing on stages telling funny, heartfelt stories. You know, in places like Boston, New York, and and now today I work with Fortune 100 companies, helping them with their marketing, advertising, and sales, injecting storytelling into it, or working with their CEO on some keynote that's coming up that you know I need to help develop and sort of help them understand how to speak on a stage and how to perform and what to be thinking about and how to prepare. So. You know, I work with I work with the FBI. I work with the hostage negotiation unit, helping them to find ways to tell stories to the people who are holding, you know, innocent victims and help them see a story where they can sort of have a future, maybe if they make the right decision here. So like the doors that have opened to me through storytelling are astounding. My wife continually tells me, like, I can't believe we're at Quantico today and we're watching <laughs> You know, watching Navy SEALs train at Quantico because I work with the FBI because one day back in 2011, I went to New York to tell a story on a stage and I thought it would be my one and only. And now I sort of do it for a living. It is, it's my primary source of income, to be honest with you. It's the thing that I could stop teaching and just be consulting with businesses. And that would be, that would be a very good way to make a living. But unfortunately, I still like those kids a lot. <laughs> Unfortunately, from my perspective. Unfortunately, yes. And a lot of my clients are on the West Coast, too. So, you know, it's not uncommon for me to finish my school day at 3.15 and by 4 o'clock I'm home because I live five minutes from my school and sitting in this chair at this table consulting with some, you know, Salesforce or Slack or Microsoft, you know, companies on the West Coast that are just starting their afternoon. So it works out well for me. It's just, it could yeah. probably be easier if I wanted it to be, you know. And thank gosh for uh, for Zoom, right? For, yeah. So for, thank God. For, well, the pandemic changed everything because prior to the pandemic, I was traveling to all these places. Yeah, and I had to carve out all this time. I'd be in the summer. I'd be on the West Coast meeting with Amazon, and now no one wants me to travel anywhere. You know, it can, no. it, the occasional like I did three days at Smuckers, you know, back in April. But um, most of the time, I'm sitting in front of a computer like this, helping people figure out their business and it's been it's been wonderful most of the time sometimes there's a client that i prefer not to 
spend time with, but most of them tend to be really great people. What is, what's the hook for them? I mean, use that word twice. It's, not, it's kind of jargony, but um, what, what seems to draw them in when they hear you telling stories or talking or writing about stories? Well, you know, it's the idea that if you're a company that understands how to tell a good story about your product or service, yeah. you're going to be able to sell that a lot better. And so I wrote Storyworthy, my storytelling book, and it wasn't written for business, but it quickly got found by business people. And they began sort of making it their Bible. So it, you know, it turns out to be my best-selling book, shockingly, and we never expected it. But they read the book and then they read what I think about storytelling and how it can apply to businesses everywhere. And you know, essentially I see a marketing plan and I talk about how we can turn this into something that's more memorable and entertaining and heartfelt and meaningful and you know, I'll look at a, a marketing deck and we'll go through the deck and I'll tell them why it's terrible and why it bores me and why it means nothing or why it's like everyone else's marketing deck and we'll we'll zhuzh it up with some storytelling. And there's a lot of times when people are speaking on stages, there's, there's so often when, you know, a, a VP is going to a conference or a CEO is introducing a new product and most of them don't really know what they're doing. You know, they tend to be people with enormous amounts of confidence. And so yeah. they assume they can take the stage and perform well. And they tend to be surrounded by people who tell them they're doing a great job. And so when <laughs> I come in, I get to tell them you're not doing a great job. There's a lot of things we need to work on if you want to improve. And the smart ones listen to me. And they, you know, oftentimes they've seen me perform or they've caught a clip of me performing. So there's some validity to what I have to say. And and then we work closely together and, you know, get the job done. There's a lot of speaking coaches in, in the corporate world. I get to watch them sometimes. You know, my a VP will say, well, watch this recording of me and my speaking coach and see what you think of what she said to me. And it becomes clear to me immediately that the speaking coach doesn't actually stand on stages and speak at, in, with any regularity. Because everything they say comes from the perspective of someone who is sitting in an audience and not someone who's sitting on, standing on a stage with any, you know, with any regularity. So oftentimes what they have to say to people is fairly useless and they tend to be afraid to critique in a, you know, in a way that says this isn't working. They tend to think if I say good things all the time, they'll keep me coming back for more. And that's just not how it really works. Yeah, that's kind of the consultants, uh, uh, Achilles heel, um, of all sorts of consultants. Uh, if I, uh, if, if I really tell them what I think, you know, uh, someone else will step through and take over. I get yeah, but that, that's the op the opposite is always true, though. I have found. I know. I, I know with, what you think. Yeah, I work with consultants, helping them become consultants. Now, oddly, that's sort of like become a new niche for me. Yeah. And when I work with them, they're so afraid to challenge. You know, they you know they'll call me and say they didn't like what I had to say. They didn't like the the marketing plan I put together. What do we do now? And I said, well, you tell them that you'll move forward in the wrong way if that's what they choose but they are wrong in choosing that path. You have to tell them, you know, it's your company, it's your path. I'm going to tell you you're wrong when you're wrong, but it's so hard for people to do it. And so I'm, I'm often coaching that idea because that's what people want and that's what people need. They need a truth teller in their business. I'll take it right back to your, um, your fifth grade classroom then. And it seems to me that that's a particularly critical age, 10, 11, where truth telling has to become a standard practice and that's very hard to ask of of a young person but my sense is that a lot of what you do with your 
various uh, manners in the class are to get them to see how important it is to see the truth, say the truth, create truth. Uh, am, am I imposing that, or is that really what you're going for too? No, you're right. You know, the, you know, the science tells me, and I do it. You know, I couch all feedback with positivity. I try to achieve that six to one ratio, where I'm going to tell you six things that you're doing well before I tell you one thing that you're not doing well. You mm -hmm. know, that is sort of the the ideal version of that, and I strike that as hard as I can. I'm also very you know, what I love to do is if I see someone not doing the right thing, rather than saying, hey, you're not doing the right thing, I will point out how the person to the left and the right of that person are doing the right thing. So I will offer two compliments rather than a critique, and the kid in the middle gets the message. Like, I love the way that you're focused on me and paying attention, and I love how many questions you've asked today. I can tell that the two of you are right with me and doing the best learning possible. And that and kid in the middle doesn't even have to like hear me. Yeah, he's like, ah, he's talking to me, right? So there's a lot of strategies teachers can use to be truth tellers. And sometimes it is truth telling. Sometimes it is, you know, sometimes you got to be hard. Sometimes kids have to hear the hard message. Mm -hmm. But uh, if they know that you love them, and if they know that I'm, I always am telling them, I'm being tough on you because you have a future that I care about. Because you're 10 years old and as unbelievable as it seems in eight years, you're going to have to make major decisions as an adult eight years from now. And right now you're hiding under a table and crying because I've asked you to do work. I'm terrified about your future because I love you. So get out from under the table and get to work, right? Which is literally a conversation I had with a kid about a week ago. Yeah. But if they yeah. know I love them, then I can be tough on them because they know it's coming from the right place. That's it. That's it. And I think there's, there's the, uh, the fresh air stream of truth is through knowing that you're trusted and loved at any in, at any level with any kind of relationship going all the way through. But my point to pick out that particular age group is that there's a lot going on from there until they're well. Hell, you know, you've got kids that age. There's a lot of change. There's a lot of uh, a lot more access to the world and. It's not its best way, right? And and they're they're working hard to kind of hold on to their own self esteem and their own truth about themselves. And you help them do that, Matt. Yeah, I I try, you know, and um, you know, I try to every day. I try to present a role model of a person who is invested in life rather than screens, and invested in people, you know, rather than sort of artifices. So. You know, I'm always talking about, I'm talking about my mistakes all the time, because I think that's really important for kids to hear that mistakes are valuable and that we make them. But also talking about, so last night, friends, when I got home, the whole family sat on the couch and we all read a book together. It was pretty great. And then I exercised. Did you know exercise is good for your brain as well as your body? You know, and I help with a meal because food is important. So if my wife cooks, I clean and the children set the table and involve yourself in the meal because food is a thing that we can come together. So I say all of these things all the time, hoping that one tiny ounce will penetrate and make a difference. And if I do that often enough, eventually it'll pile up. Yeah, but you're supposed to be teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> right. Three R's. And you well, know, I do. I will tell you that. In the 25 years I've been teaching, I have had a dramatic shift. Content has become very unimportant in a child's education. You know, there was a day when I was supposed to be teaching 
the economy of the mid-Atlantic pre-colonial states or colonies, right? The, the, the economy of those colonies. Mm. And a child raised his hand and said, what is polyamory? Right before I was ready to teach it, you know? Uh, and I thought to myself, I'm going to teach these kids the economy of the middle colonies and pre-colonial era, or we're going to talk about polyamory, the idea that you can love anyone in the world in a romantic way. And I decided to go for polyamory because I decided that information about the, the, the middle colonies, it's always going to be available to them. It's on their phone. It's on a computer. It's in a book. Content is a lot less important as skill and understanding and empathy and hard work and tenacity and grit. And so I spent an enormous amount of my class time talking about and teaching and modeling and helping kids figure out those things. It is not to say I'm not teaching content, but I just view it as it's not as important to understand the water cycle because all of that content is now so available to everyone at all yeah, times. That, that's the revolution. Yeah. Yeah. I'd much rather teach them how to become a learner so that when they want to learn about the water cycle with great depth and interest, they understand where to go, how to do it, how to ask for help, how to be curious, you know, what a good resource versus a bad resource is, how to read, you know, how to look at numbers and understand when people are trying to make numbers appear the way they want you to think them as opposed to the way they really are. All of those skills, I think, are just so much more important these days. Probably in uh, more than 20 years you've been uh, in this uh, K-12 world, um, have you found common uh, cause with other teachers gradually over time or other teachers saying, hey, content, yeah, okay, but character and all the rest that has uh that has to have our attention is something we need to do or oh yeah yes. are you are you sort of an oasis <laughs> no no i'm not an oasis we certainly um have really focused on social and emotional learning yeah. to a great degree you know I, the advantage i have is you know if i don't get to the economy of the middle colonies i don't care you know and i have i have colleagues who care and i understand why they care they want to sort of do well and they want to get good marks from the principal and this is their career you know and it's their only source of income and yeah. and you know as my wife points out i get a lot of gratification and ego satisfaction from a million sources i have books that sit behind me on a shelf and i've got i stand on stages and get applause but for some people it's teaching it's the thing That's they it. want and it's the whole thing right and so for them they got to nail it just right and and honestly a lot of teachers are rule followers which is fine you know you tell them what to teach and that is exactly what they'll teach and then there's people like me who i despise rules at all times and i'm constantly trying to circumvent them and my boss knows it you know i tell him if you tell me to do something i will do it because i'm not going to be insubordinate but if you don't explicitly tell me something i will try to get around you if i can and he's fully aware of the way i operate you know but in my career children are happy parents are happy my scores are good and so i can sort of move forward in the way that i choose to move forward and it works out well not to say i don't teach reading writing and math and all the things we need to teach i just think that those things have um those things are not quite as important as they used to be in terms of the other skills that we have to also be teaching. But there's right. lots and lots of teachers who agree with me. And, and, and certainly the school district that I work in has taken a deep and abiding concern over social, emotional learning for kids and yeah. making sure that they feel right and, you know, 
feel good about themselves and understand what it takes to be successful. Oh, you're you're fortunate to be uh, teaching in a, uh, I, I guess, a progressive community. Really, it's yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's a a place where um, a lot of very uh, smart folks settle yeah. and and uh, want their kids to become smarter too. Yes, so that's good. But I, I, I don't want to. I've only got a few more minutes on our clock. But I, I, I hate to throw out the, the thing that sobered me today. Uh, but I will because we're talking about particularly uh, K twelve teaching, and it's, it's not like sudden news. The 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 article that I read, uh, in the Chronicle Higher Education, I believe, was uh, connected to the fact that teacher education preparation programs around the country are having less and less and less demand yeah. at the same time that we have teachers leaving much younger <laughs> to do other things than ever before. So it's a kind of a perfect, un, a perfect storm of, of, the, of the imperfect kind. Uh, and the gist of the article was that the calling, the sense of calling is fading. Yeah. And uh, saying, you know, because there's shootings and there are other things that happen that you're putting a lot at risk when you walk into that classroom, even in a nice uh, suburban uh, city like yours. Uh, there's, there's always that. And uh, I, my very first college teaching job was at a normal school called Willimantic State Teachers College in, you know, Eastern, Eastern Connecticut. Yeah with we i think we had 700 students back then. now it's a eastern connecticut state university and all that but we were really close to the cloth and uh that was about all we offered was a teacher preparation program with a, a few little bells and whistles around the side which i came there to help them add yeah uh and it was um now reading that knowing how dedicated those students were when i was working with them most of whom now are your age or beyond because i did that in the 60s uh at least uh, yeah the 60s jesus am i old <laughs> <laughs> and i'm and so my heart is saying where's the good news in this article is is there at the end of it does it say however <laughs> there's a counterbalancing trend and there was no however so what's your thought on that well I'll give you a however in a second, you know, I'll right. point out one of the problems, you know, I think that teachers experience is that, you know, negative gets the dues, you know, so, you know, I was writing recently about how of the 1000 book bans or challenges to books in Florida, um, about 800 of those challenges were issued by two people. So yeah. two people in Florida were responsible for 800 of the 1000 possible book bannings, but that gets all the news, right? So two, you know, terrible human beings, <laughs> probably bigoted are trying to ban books. And because of it, Florida is banning all the books when really it's two people and a terrible law and a ridiculous governor, right? So we get that perception or the fact that a shooting, which they're horrible and awful, and the world has certainly changed it is more likely that you will win the lottery than you will be in a school shooting, you know, in the course of your career. That's just the mm -hmm. truth. But again, we see it on the news. We run lockdown drills and we suddenly feel terrorized, you know, which is not unjustifiable, especially here in Connecticut, which is just down the road, you know, for, for Sandy Hook. And yet, and yet my chances of winning the lottery are probably better than me ever being in a school shooting, you know? So those kinds of perspective taking I bring to teaching all the time. 
I think the however, you know, the good news and what it's what's happening is for a very long time, teachers haven't really had a lot of power. You know, I think about the auto workers went on strike today, the UAP. They're yeah. asking for a raise of 30 to 40 percent over the next 10 years. Right. Teachers currently are getting a one to two percent raise in West Hartford per year, knowing what inflation is. And I, I know my colleagues are not thinking about it right now. But if we're receiving a 2% raise over the course of last year, really what we had was a 13% decrease in our salary as a result of inflation. That's right. Right? Because yeah. if inflation was 15 and I got 2%, that means I lost 13% of my salary. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. And we have nothing that we can do about it, essentially, which is why another reason why people aren't going into teaching. If you're guaranteed a 2% raise every year, regardless of your performance, regardless of your dedication, that's a real problem in our in our career. Like it's a calling, but it's a calling that has to put a house and children through college and all of these things. And that doesn't happen on 2% a year, particularly in inflationary times. So we have auto workers who are wisely going on strike asking for 30 to 40% raises over the next 10 years. And we are mindlessly like sheep taking our 2% and saying, well, that's all they can afford. And we're going to stores and buying supplies for our own classrooms, which I tell teachers to never do, because it's only going to change when a parent walks into a classroom and says, where's all the cute stuff? And you say, well, they didn't give me the money for the map on the wall and the pencils and the container and the staplers. I don't spend my own money on my classroom because business people do not spend money on their offices and truck drivers don't spend money on their on the gas for their trucks. This is not how things work. That's so I think right. the however is that when the teacher crunch comes and it's coming quickly and districts are desperate to fill these positions, teachers will find themselves with more leverage than they've ever had before. Yeah. And so that's the however, is teaching is going to become, I hope, a more appealing uh, profession for people who want to do the work and don't either feel supported or don't feel like they're going to be financially viable through their teaching profession. So that has to change for us to get more teachers. And, and you can tell people for the rest of their lives that teachers are the most important people in the world. But if you don't pay them like the most important people in the world, your words are ultimately meaningless to these people. So. I can, uh, I, can, I can assure the listeners that the families of the students who are in Matt Dick's class now and have been in his classes over the previous years are getting far more than their money's worth. And, and it's, it's something that if you keep that beacon going, Matt, just a little longer before you become <laughs> so busy you can't teach in the classroom anymore. Maybe it's going to inspire more people to say, all right, look, uh, Matt started out homeless and, and when he was a kid, and now look what he's able to accomplish. And what is the, what's the secret? This is me just learning you. Mm -hmm. The secret to Matt Dix is that he has this experience five days a week for nine months of the year where he can be completely open to the prospect of these kids gaining and learning and growing, finishing the year as almost transformed human beings be compared to when they started. And doing that year after year, that kind of gets the gets the juices going for all kinds of other creative work. It really does. And my wife is a kindergarten teacher, and she feels uh, it even more. 
you know, because yeah. I get kids from sort of one place to another. But when they come to me, they can pretty much read and they can add and they can subtract. I move them along the continuum for sure. I think I actually do more work in that that grit and that hard work and that organization. I think I make more progress there. But my wife takes kids who uh, have never spoken a word of English. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the year, they're speaking English and writing in English. Or she te- takes kids who can't form letters in the beginning of the year. She had a lesson the other day where she had to teach them lowercase l. And I said, lowercase l, that's a line. And she said, Matt, you got to teach them to start at the top and they got to move to the bottom and it's got to be straight. And none of them have hand-eye coordination and small muscle, you know, <laughs> all of this. Th- so she talks about it because September is awful for a kindergarten teacher because all the children oh, are yeah. basically, you know, feral. And so uh, every year she <laughs> suffers through September and October, but she glows in May and June when she sees what the kids have, are able to do compared to the beginning of the year. It is a beautiful thing to be able to do. Great story. I'm so delighted to finally almost meet you in person. <laughs> We're probably about 15 miles apart in geography <laughs> here in Connecticut, but thanks to Zoom, thanks to your uh, inspiring posts on Facebook, which is what drew my uh, attention initially uh i'm going to find at least a couple of your books and uh maybe add some more fire to my uh to my stove i i haven't lost my teaching fire as uh, this podcast series and the book has brought me to people all over the world and i love it yeah uh maybe i should take a lesson from you on how to make a little extra money as a retiree. <laughs> it's no, not I bad had, to have multiple income streams I, I at the had, time. I, I did some hustling to, 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 okay. to keep, keep the wolf from the door. Yeah. But this has been great. I thank you so much. Well, uh, I thank yeah. you. It's been a pleasure. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. And let's, let's meet again sometime. Yes, let's. let's right. Anytime. Thank take you. Podcast where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, Listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, and one more thing. How could I forget? The book on practice as a way of being is available now in digital form something that would be new like podcasting to many of us and it's a a great way of learning more and more about what this podcast presented when peter vale and i originated it several years ago so please come to www my library one word dot world slash practice and you'll see what i mean thank you <laughs>